Happy everyone. So, I think sometimes we don't comprehend how amazing a testimony is that somebody has come from literal spiritual death to life in Christ. And it's easy to say, oh, that was a cool testimony, really encouraging. But that's like, just like me and so many of us here tonight, we were dead and now we're alive in him because of the good news, because of his mercy and his grace. So shot bro for sharing that. All right. Just had like a little heart attack there. I went to get my phone. It's always on my left pocket. <clears throat> so here we go. So I was asked to speak uh, here at Night Church again, which is humbling and a real privilege and a real honour and a real responsibility. Um, and I was asked to speak on a topic, actually, and the topic uh, is even more humbling, to be honest, that I get to try and speak into this. And the topic is the call to serve. Um, and I believe that is a subject that is one of maybe the key continuous themes through God's word from Genesis right through to Revelation is God's call on his people on how to serve and how to live for him in whichever way that may have looked at the time. Um, so what I want to start with is just to lay a real solid biblical foundation um, with scripture because God's word is supreme. It is all authority and if I, what I say tonight's not based on the word of God, then you shouldn't even listen to it. Uh, first passage I want to go to, and if you've got your Bible, please go with me. Joshua 24. And uh, as soon as I say Joshua 24, you might know the passage I'm going to refer to. Joshua addressing the people of Israel, charging them, challenging them on how they're going to go forth from this moment. And Joshua says to them in verse 14 of Joshua 24, So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols that your ancestors worshipped when, when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And I can stand up here tonight and honestly say that that is a declaration that me and my family are striving for right now. No matter what is around us, no matter what even people within the church may think is the way to serve your environment doesn't hinder how you see the word of God. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Can you go with me to Mark 10? I've got three, three texts I want to read. Uh, Mark 10. I love this passage. Um, James and John had just asked Jesus something out of human desire, really, if they could sit with him in his kingdom next to his throne. And then the other disciples hear about it. They're all annoyed and upset. Jesus calls them together and he says in Mark 10, uh, 42, he says that you know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and the officials flaunt their authority over those who are under them, but among you it will be different. 
Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first among you must be the slave of everyone else. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, uh, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then one more, 2 Peter 3.11. 2 Peter 3.11. And I'm just going to read this in relevance to what I'm going to talk about tonight. By his divine power, that's God, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. These are promises that enable you to share his divine nature and to escape the world's corruption that's caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with a love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they themselves have been cleansed from their old sins. So dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those that God has called and chosen. Do these things and you'll never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Awesome, eh? Um, what I want to do tonight is splitting this message. I've, I've made this into three parts, and I want to address why we should serve. I want to uh, articulate that it's good for the church, it's good for the body, and why we need to do that. But I think before we even get there and, and why we should serve and why serving is good is to realize the simple truth that it's not like, a, oh, I need to serve. Serving and living for Christ, a Christ-exalted life is the natural overflow of living a life that is all about him, having died to everything that this world has to offer us. And I believe that even tonight in this room, there are many of us who I still got a foot in each camp. Say there's this bit of tape here and you've, you've got a foot here, you want to live for Christ, but there's so many things in this world that are still attractive to you. Even when you came to Christ and you, you know, <sighs> died to those things, you, maybe you haven't really. Um, and I want to start with part one, which is I'm stealing the title of this book that I've recently read. It's called Risk is Right. Better to lose your life than to waste it. Risk is right. Better to lose your life than to waste it. And I actually just want to read a portion of this book from the Ford. Uh, it's, it's a book by John Piper, but the Ford is written by uh, David Platt. And a lot of you guys know David Platt. Um, and he writes this section here in the Ford that I just want to read to us because I think it's awesome. He's talking about the children of Israel standing right on the border of the promised land. And you know the story. They send uh, 12 spies in there. Um, 10 come back and say, no, nah, it's way too scary. We're not doing that. Even though God's promised them that he's going to give them the land, only two faithful men of God say, yes, we can take it because God said so. And he says here, 
that we also stand at a border like that every single day when it comes to fear and trusting in what God says to be true and right or trusting and believing in ourselves more so. And he says, as we stand here at the Kadesh Barnea, we have a choice. We too can retreat into a wilderness of wasted opportunity. We can rest in casual, convenient, cozy, comfortable Christian lives as we cling to the safety and the security that this world offers. We can coast through a cultural landscape that's marked by materialism, characterized by consumerism and engulfed in individualism. We can ascend to the spirit of this age and choose to spend our lives seeking worldly pleasures, acquiring worldly possessions and pursuing worldly ambitions, all under the banner of cultural Christianity. Or we can decide that Jesus is worth more than this. We can recognize that he has created us. He has saved us and he has called us for a much greater purpose than anything that this world can ever offer us. We can die to ourselves, our hopes, dreams, our ambitions, our priorities and our plans. And we can do all of this because we believe that the person and the plan of Christ bring reward reward that makes any risk more than worth it. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus tells his disciples that the, G- the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then he covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Imagine walking in a field and stumbling upon a treasure that's more valuable than anything else that you could work for or find in this life. It's more valuable than all that you have now or all that you will ever have in the future. You look around and you notice that no one else realizes that the treasure's there. So you cover it up quickly and you walk away pretending that you haven't even seen anything. You go into town and you begin to sell off all your possessions so that you have enough money to buy that field and the world thinks you're crazy. What are you thinking, your friends and family ask you, and you tell them, I'm buying that field over there. They look at you in disbelief. That's foolish, they say. Why are you going to give up everything you have to go and buy that field? And you respond, I've got a hunch, and you smile to yourself as you walk away. You smile because you know that in the end, any risk that others perceive is nothing compared to the reward you will receive. So with joy, with joy, you sell it all. Why? Because you've found something worth losing everything else for. This is the picture of Jesus in the gospel. He is something, someone worth losing everything for. And when we really believe this, then risking everything we are and everything we have to know and obey Christ is no longer a matter of sacrifice, it's just common sense. To let go of the pursuits, the possessions, the pleasures, the safety and the so-called security of this world in order to follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter what it costs, is not sacrificial as much as it is smart. In the words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen. Awesome, eh? A life lived for eternity really is what that's about. Realizing this world for what it is, a trap. We were born into sin and then we continue to believe in ourselves more than a supreme God who every single promise he's ever made has come to fruition. And I love, and I, re- I, I read this passage last time I was up here. I remember just before Christmas and it's, it's huge for me. And I, I hope and pray that it would be huge for you. Paul had many worldly accolades. He had many things that he could puff himself up over if he wanted to and say, man, look, I was 
high up Pharisee, born in this tribe, had this accolade, on and on and on. But what does he say about them in Philippians 3, 7? He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. He goes on to say, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And you might think, oh, that's a level that I can never get to. That sounds like perfection. Well, to encourage all of us, if if we read on in verse 12, he even admits himself, he says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ, Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling, not just him, but he says, is calling us, all of us. A life lived for eternity. He's such a great example. I love what he says to the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, when he knows that he's being led by the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Rome. And he says to them in Acts 20, and now I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. And what does he say about that? But he says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. That is the standard of a Christ-centered life. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for his glory. And yet we get caught up in the trap. And I just want to start with this because Before we talk about service and serving God, I don't want, and I don't believe God wants his church to be doing token service once a week, an hour and a half at this program or once a month doing this or that. No, we're called to die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. If we try to save our life, we're going to lose it. But if we lose our life for his sake, then we're going to actually find it. Um, But what stops that from happening? And I think the answer is very simple, but very confronting. Unbelief. Unbelief and fear. Fear coming from unbelief. Believing in ourselves still more than believing in God and his word and what he says to be true. But when we fully surrender to him and say, okay, God, it's no longer I who live, but it's you that live within me. What would that look like? Well, first of all, in terms of the church in front of an unbelieving world, I believe it would start by the church venturing out from the church bubble, going out boldly, not afraid of anything, knowing that risk is right. What are the examples we have from Scripture? When I read the Gospels and the early church in the New Testament, I don't see um, them setting up programs at their main building, running that once a week. No, I see them pursuing people for the kingdom of God going out, not knowing what was in front of them and pursuing people for the kingdom. One from the Gospels that Jesus, just our Lord Jesus himself, I love this story. He, him and his disciples get in the boat. They go across the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Gerasenes. And you know the story. He's this demon-possessed guy. He's been cutting himself. They can't be, he can't be chained. From that account in Scripture, they get in the boat. They go across the water. 
Jesus heals him, casts the demon out into the pigs. Um, he then goes around the 10 towns telling everybody what Jesus had done and they get in the boat and leave again. The only purpose he went across there was for that guy. He pursued him so that he could grant him life. And then I think of all the faithful men of God, Paul, Peter, Barnabas, Timothy, Silas, Apollos, you know, all of them, um, kilometre after kilometre, not knowing what was before them, knowing that their life was worth nothing to them unless they use it for his glory. And I just want to, this is an interesting word that we use at church all the time. I want to challenge us tonight, but I don't want everyone to say, oh, that's challenging and then not do anything with it because I'm, I'm sick of hearing that. <laughs> Let's be challenged and then be doers of the word, brothers and sisters, please. Jesus didn't just hang out at the synagogue thinking, oh, yeah, people, I think people know we're here. We've got a big sign. There's lots of traffic going past. If they want to know about the Lord, they can come and talk to me about it. That's not how it was. Did you imagine reading the New Testament? And I don't want to have a, I'm not having a go at the church. I love the church. But I just don't think we're where we should be as a people. And can you imagine, does this, I just want to read one example and you, you think if this sounds like the church in 2021, especially in the West. This is just out of Acts 4. He says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. And there were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them, and they'd bring the money to the apostles and give, them, give it to those that were in need. And then it says even Barnabas himself sold a whole lot of land and gave it away. That's what it looks like to know what it's like to find that treasure and not consider anything else in this life treasure. And I know a lot of us have more. I've got a mortgage and think stuff and all that, but let's not put any value in that. Imagine if, if you were led by the Spirit to give that away, I wonder what you'd do. Would we reason and say, oh, no, 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 that's not your will, Lord? Or would we be obedient? and not put any value in, in stock in that stuff. Love for Christ will always extend itself to others. Thankfulness to Christ will always result in sharing our blessings with others. Gratitude for God's loving pursuit will always lead us to pursue others, even when they don't want to be pursued. Thankfulness for Christ's willingness to enter our messy world will make us willing to enter somebody else's. Part two, I got three parts. Part two, the body and the need for unity. If you've got your Bibles, go with me to John 17. An amazing chapter of Scripture. Jesus praying to the Father shortly before he's betrayed and handed over to the uh, arresting authorities. But when it comes to the theme of unity and what I read from scripture is that above all else when it comes to serving and serving in the church and serving out there and being a witness to the world, our unity trumps everything else. That's what I get from reading the word of God. Listen to what it says in uh, verse 11. Now I am departing from the world. He's praying to the Father. 
They are staying in this world as are his disciples, but I am coming to you, Holy Father. You have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. Is the church as united as the Father and the Son? That's what he's praying for. Drop down to verse 20. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they, may they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. That is huge. And if we look at the church, how, if someone was to hazard a guess, how many denominations is there? I would say like thousands, but it might even be like tens of thousands. Unity has been the biggest struggle of the church. Well, one of them. We've got a lot of struggles. <laughs> the biggest struggle of the church, man. And I can say for me and for my life, in the way that God has pruned me in the last few years and sanctified me and matured me in my faith as a result of completely surrendering to him, and that's pretty much what it's from, he has given me this heart for his people like I never had before. I used to always have problems with people in the church, like, oh, that guy's a such and such or whatever. <laughs> I used to talk different. And... Um, but now I can honestly say that I just love everybody and actually love all unbelievers too, which is weird because people do horrific, terrible things. And I used to probably have that mindset of like, oh, he deserves this, that, that. Now, when I see that now where I am in my faith, I just think, oh, like I'm, it's just tragic pain for them because they're missing it. They're missing the life that can only give, the only peace that can they can have through Christ. Another, just a short one to back up the theme of unity. Philippians 1. Uh, yeah, it is Philippians 1. Paul addressing the church in Philippi and addressing us through the living word. And he says this in Philippians 1.27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Some of your translations might say, um, striving together side by side for the sake of the gospel. He says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. And then listen to this again. Suffering seems to be a continuous theme in the New Testament. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of the privilege of suffering for him. We're in the struggle together. We're in the struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. We need to be united as a church and as a body for the sake of our witness to an unbelieving world but then also in the way that we work as the church. God has given each and every one of us who is in Christ 
an amazing spiritual gift from his array of spiritual giftings. And there's each of us tonight here in this room who is a Christian, has been given a gift that they can then use for the glory of God that no one else can do like you. And if we put those together, that is what's powerful. Um, there's Unfortunately, we battle with egos and pride and all these things. And even within ministry, you know, there's that mindset of, hey, this is my ministry. Don't get involved. You go do something else. Go serve, but don't do it with me. It happens, I think. Um, I've battled that in the past. Um, I don't know if you've seen that analogy of like the one piece of Lego. One piece of Lego can't do much. But when you put all, imagine them all being parts of the body and then it can do some great purpose. And that's what it's like with the spiritual giftings that God has given us for his glory. Uh, One more note on this. Just I know I'm a bit heavy on scripture, but God's word's got better things to say than me. (laughs) 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself was speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and the energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. This is an awesome quote I've saved in my phone for quite some time, and it's just imagining we as the body on a Sunday morning in unison and imagining unbelievers coming through and, and witnessing what was in front of them. And this quote just says this, you're not, a draw, you're not drawing attention to your wisdom or your relational savvy or personal giftedness. You're calling attention to Jesus, your King. The kingdom of God is not just for private enjoyment, but it's also for public display. People who come into our midst will see the work of the kingdom, but they won't necessarily see the King. And it is our responsibility and our privilege to point him, point them to him. All right. Part three, an encouragement to you who are serving. Press on towards the goal. I tried to really stress the point last time I was up here at Night Church about God's promises, that his promises do not change regardless of how we feel, regardless of our circumstance. Um, They are the same and we can cling to those as his assurance to us. And I love his promises of just intentionally love memorizing scripture because when I'm ministering in the community, showing Christ uh, in situations that sometimes I don't know what's going to happen, uh, I can get nervous and think, oh, this looks semi-dodgy, but I'm going to keep. And then I just quote scripture to myself and be like, no, God, you're with me. You're sovereign. I trust your providence. And just some promises to really encourage you guys tonight, some that I love and cling to, John 16, 33. I've told you all of these things so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Matthew 5, 11, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all kinds of evil things against you because you are my followers. He says, be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And be sure of this, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Sometimes it can be discouraging serving. You think that you're just doing it on your own and in your own strength and you seem to be taking three steps back and one step forward every few months or so. 
And I came across this quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon and it was very timely. It was in God's providence. He just showed it to me through a commentary that I was reading uh, in the Gospel of John, I think it was. And Spurgeon says this, to be a fisherman, to be a fisherman, a man must expect disappointments. He must often cast in the net and bring up nothing but weeds. And the minister of Christ must reckon upon being disappointed. And he must not be weary in well-doing for all of his disappointments, but must in faith continue in prayer and labor, expecting that at the end he shall see, receive his reward. I think a lot of us that serve, it's hard. And it should be hard because if everything's going really, really well, then I think you're doing something wrong sometimes. Um, to a point. Um, <laughs> don't, don't build a church around that theology. But... <laughs> Um, but also sometimes, like I said before, you can um, feel like you're on your own, eh? And there's sometimes where I get really, really exhausted and I kind of feel, I always think to Elijah after the contest on Mount Carmel and then he, things don't go the way he thought they were going to go and then he falls into, I don't fall into depression, but he falls into deep depression and wants to die pretty much because he says to the Lord, like, I'm done, I'm exhausted. And it can be like that sometimes when you're trying to do things on your own strength rather than clinging to his strength, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, when I'm weak, then I am strong in him. But there's an awesome picture that I want to share from 2 Kings 6 of the fact that we're not alone. 2 Kings 6, I mean, of course we're not alone. We've got the Holy Spirit. He is in us. God is always with us. But I just love this picture also as an encouragement to you, hopefully. Um, the king of Aram has sent this massive army to pretty much take out Elisha because Elisha's the key to why uh, Aram can't get anywhere with in their battle with, with the Israelites because Elisha just gives all this intel that he gets from God straight to the king of Israel so they can he can never get anywhere. So I'll take I'll read it up from verse 14. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army and many chariots and horses to surround the city where um, Elisha and his helper, helper servant were staying. And when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning, he went outside and there were troops, horses and chariots everywhere. And then he said to Elisha, Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. He'd be like, what? There is more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. How awesome is that? We are never alone. And we can't lose if we're in Christ. To live as Christ, to die is gain. What's the worst that could happen? Get to go to heaven. <laughs> um, so I just want to conclude with this, I guess. A Christ-centered life does not require somebody like me to stand up here and try and convince people why they should serve, why they should serve the body and their brothers and sisters in Christ, and why they should step out into a world that's lost in spiritual death because that should be the natural overflow of living in Christ. That should be the natural overflow of having surrendered everything to Christ, surrendered all the 
traps of this world, all the material stuff that's just fleeting and passing away. And I know those of you who come to church every single week, you'll hear people up the front preaching that sort of thing, saying that sort of, you know, preaching that message. But it's true. There is nothing in this world to offer us. Jesus is my life, and I hope he's yours. Just think of it for a sec, like the one through whom all things were created. Everything was created through him and for him, humbled himself and was born as a human being in our weak bodies like ours so he he could identify in our weakness and our struggles. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross, the one who created all things. But before he died on the cross, he lived the life we couldn't live. Then he died the death we deserve to die. And then he rose again and he conquered the enemy that we could never conquer and that we have life in him now in this world and forevermore. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And we know what Peter, Peter was the first one to speak and he said the right thing because it was revealed to him from heaven. He said, you are the Messiah, the son of God. I want to say this, he asks us that question every single day. And a major, major part on how we answer that question is how we live that day out. See, if we chase all the stuff in this world and then we read our Bibles for five minutes and give God a token prayer, is he really our Lord? Is he really supreme in our lives? You know, Lord means master. So if he's our master, that makes us his servant or... A biblical word is slave. That's an ugly word that people don't like to use, but we are slaves of righteousness, according to Romans 6, slaves of Christ. Your theology or what you believe is not what you say necessarily, but it's what you do. Just like Blake said before, knowing the Bible doesn't save us. Saying we believe something doesn't save us. But Striving to make disciples is going to be the natural overflow of being a disciple. And sharing Christ is the natural overflow of living a Christ-centered life. Some people argue that this hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, is the greatest hymn ever written. And it is a beautiful, awesome hymn, and I particularly love the last verse. And if I could paraphrase it, it says, If the whole realm of nature everything was mine, it would still be an offering back to God far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son, our great high priest, to die for us. And Lord God, I pray that we as individuals and we as Hokanui Bible Church and we as the church, the global church, would honour you with our lives as living sacrifices, having truly, truly, truly died to ourselves and to our own way and that we would take up our cross and follow you, knowing that losing the so-called life, we would then find true life in you, Lord. Thank you for your word, which is true, and for your promises that never change, regardless of how we feel. I pray, Lord, that as brothers and sisters in Christ here tonight, Lord, that we would truly surrender to you, and that we would seek to give you praise and glory in everything we do.
all glory and honor and praise belongs to you and to your name forever and ever. Amen. Amen.